Welcome to Conversations with Quiet Leaders. My name is Juliet Morris. I believe there is greatness in leading and building teams through powerful listening, what's being said and what's being heard. In this podcast, you'll hear from quiet leaders who are being more bold, more brave and more comfortable with who they are. So in today's episode of Conversations with Quiet Leaders, I'm delighted to welcome Gary. Gary Roberts is the co-director of Earthworld Partnership, a communications, sustainability and management consultancy designed to provide a diverse portfolio of tailored services to companies, social enterprises, charities and other organisations. And Gary and I met um, via LinkedIn because in his profile he mentioned around quiet leadership. And I love, Gary, that in your profile you talks about um, you, where you say, who through quiet leadership has developed 35 years of comprehensive communications, income growth, partnership, consultancy, charity, and conservation management experience. So welcome, Gary. It's fantastic to talk to you today. Good afternoon, Juliet, and thank you for the opportunity. I feel honoured. <laughs> Thank you. So um, that statement is a, a very, for me, it's a very positive and bold statement around quiet leadership. Tell us a little bit more about that and your journey into Earthworld. Wow, yes, I'll be delighted. My journey to getting towards Earthworld involves, well, at the very least, 35 years um, in the professional career sort of capacity. But really, the journey began when I was a boy, if you like. Um, my late father worked as um, a film recordist for the BBC. So I had the good fortune, um, even as a very sort of young person, going up to the BBC sort of film studios in Ely and learning a little bit about what my father got up to. And in particular, some of the sort of wildlife and nature and gardening programmes that um, he was involved with. And that really sort of... Um, helped build my interest and my enthusiasm and passion for nature and wildlife and at that time in particular birds and butterflies which has continued throughout the whole of my career. There's a beautiful story in your journey through childhood and through uh, conservation and particularly in being introduced by your father to that arena how it allowed you to step into your own voice and create your own stage through some of the things that you were fortunate enough to be able to do. Tell us a bit more about that. I think you're overall referring to the fact that um, very early on, my late father would take me out on location. And so I remember, um, I think, um, in my early teens and so on, meeting um, a gardener called um, Jeffrey Smith, and he Mm -hmm. did all sorts of wildlife gardening. The sort of... um, it's been ta- he did Gardener's World and so on, and it's now been sort of taken over by Monty Don and, and, and so on. And um, Jeffrey Smith was just as enthusiastic as Monty Don and the likes of Alan Titchmarsh and so on. And I remember when we were not, when Jeffrey and the crew were not actually filming, that he would sort of say, Come on, walk with me, Gary. And we would be talking about the birds, literally the birds, the bees, the flowers. He would be um, imparting all his knowledge. He would be asking about, you know, my interest in gardening, for example. But also um, there was just that encouragement. So when we were looking at the garden flowers or the wild flowers and, and so on, he would put the, he, he would explain some of the history. And it was just, if you like, having that pure sort of passion 
and enthusiasm. Um, clearly, he was very passionate and enthusiastic about his gardening career. And the other um, sort of key person, although I only met him once very briefly in my younger years, was Sir David Attenborough. And he's just the, you know, on a global level, he's just the, the best naturalist conservationist we've currently got. And, um, you know, over decades and decades of filming. And again, I remember being introduced to him, albeit very briefly, um, by my father. And um, that all came about because um, it sounds like I'm name dropping, really, but... Um, my late father had a very interesting um, career and in the mid-1960s he um, had the good fortune to do one of the zoo quests with David Attenborough um, down in what is now Zimbabwe and Mozambique and um, I think Tanzania and they spent several months out there filming and I remember my father telling me this and then being introduced to David Attenborough um, as I say when I was a when I was a lad and then during my career, particularly when I was working at Butterfly Conservation, we had the opportunity. Um, first, I think David got invited out to look at a, a very rare but reintroduced butterfly um, in Somerset, uh, the large blue butterfly. And we had a very good field trip, saw the large blues. And I think Sir David in particular wanted to see the large blue and its interaction and life cycle with a particular species of ant and, and, and so on. And I remember during the quieter times, so I was there with various other journalists from national newspapers and, and, and radio and TV. I just quietly said to David, my father would like to be remembered to you. And he instantly re remembered and put my name as Gary Roberts with my father's name, Bob Roberts, and said, so you must be the son of Bob Roberts. And then he waxed lyrical in front of all the other um, guests, if you like, and journalists about him working with my father. And I just thought, well, I'm now sort of following on. Living my passion and living my dream, no doubt along the similar sorts of lines as everyone, as I say, from, you know, Jeffrey Smith, a, 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 a gardener, through to Sir David Attenborough, who's more than just a naturalist and a conservationist. He is a real genuine hero i could talk to you all, all, all you know for the next hour and a half just about that enthusiasm um but in a when we're, we're talking about quiet leadership probably many of these people are in their own right i think what would be considered quiet leaders mm, mm. and so i think it, i think quiet leadership is very diverse and and there are some common threads with everybody but i think that can be very sort of diverse, but I really, I really like the whole idea of being a quiet leader and quiet leadership and what that means to different people, at, at different and, and probably to different people. And like from my own point of view, being a quiet leader now is probably a, different from how I envisaged it maybe 15, 25 years ago. And, and, and so on. So I, I just think the whole concept's very interesting. Mm. But if you like to answer your sort of original question, Juliet, what it, what it meant was, is that, um, you know, I knew when I was sort of doing my O-levels and A-levels as it was then, that I wanted to have a career in conservation, in natural history, that side of things, really being outside. And... Um, 
various means that we'll no doubt talk about during this conversation is that um, a lot of my career has been, if you like, completely unplanned and unconstructed, but with the baseline of it all being built really on the sort of conservation, the nature, the environmental side of things. And if you like to fast forward 35, 36 years, it's led me um, to setting up Earthwild partnership with a co-director and, and co-founder. And it's my third consultancy that it's very much in the design um, and innovative being, you know, it's, in, it's still in creation and development, um, really, because I, I really whilst I enjoy being an employee for other organisations, I actually really enjoy the excitement and the risk of working for yourself and building your own business. And um, to be able to combine my various passions and interests, um, whether it's, you know, direct conservation and helping, you know, in a small way with, you know, mitigating climate change and, and so on, or whether it's through being able to communicate um, with different audiences, talk to potential funders and bring in a large gift and donation um, to, to benefit the organisation, often the charity that I'd be working for. I, I think that's what I overall enjoy doing and that's what we're, we, we hope to do, we are doing with, with Earthwild Partnership at the moment. And we've got very big plans and, 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 and so on. I completely agree with you. I think there, there is a something around that bigger picture that, you know, the vision that you described that and, you know, when you know what you're passionate about and what your purpose is, you're very laser focused on that. And, and I think it's that's that's driving you to it. You said a few things around quiet leadership there, but you said also it was probably different to what you thought it would be 20, 25 years ago. So tell me a little bit about what you thought it was in comparison to what you believe quiet leadership is now. That's a good question. And I don't know whether I can answer that, but I just get the feeling. I think quiet leadership is becoming more and more accepted currently. And mm -hmm. I think just because you describe, like I describe myself as being a quiet leader, does not mean you're literally, as I'm demonstrating now, that you're literally quiet and you don't say more than a couple of words and you're extremely shy. Now, from my point of view, I am shy or certainly have been. And I think maybe I am answering your, your question thinking about it because I know that when I was setting out in my career, I was a very, very shy teenager and I would talk to people, but it didn't always feel comfortable. And earlier on in my career, there are times where when you're dealing with people that are sort of 15, 20, 25 years older than you, it takes a lot of courage and guts, I think, to actually stand up and be counted and say something, particularly if you're then saying something that you, that you basically don't agree with what's being said by the so-called old, well, the, the older person with the so-called 30 years experience mm. and, 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 and so on, who has probably carved out a niche and a following for themselves and, and, and so on. Um, and I know I sort of noticed that now because there are a lot of, in particular, young women like Sibel, for example, um, 
on the environmental stage that are very adept at communications, far better than I was um, at, at their age, and are very sort of adept at the social media and talking on various social media pa- platforms, as well as live, you know, on, 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 on sort of rallies and marches and so on. But what, the, the saying that, you know, that my father's generation and certainly, you know, my grandparents' generation, that, you know, girls should be seen and not heard. Why should girls or young women be just seen and not heard? Why can't they have a voice? They have a voice. They have as much right to talk about their passions, what interests them, what they don't like and what they're not going to put up with anymore in the time. I've never understood why, you know, you hear people saying to parents, oh, you know, your girl's very bossy, isn't she? Well, maybe she's not bossy. Maybe she's just showing the attitude to being a natural leader and being able to manage people and situations. Younger people and, and, and women in particular, I think, have, have learned that they have got a voice and they've got a right to have a voice. And also, I think, because of things like social media and just the sort of global sort of media presence that we all have lived in, certainly since the beginning of, if you like, the 21st century and and, and so on, is that um, no one's sort of that shut off anymore. Mm. And I think it's also been demonstrated that you don't have to stand on your soapbox necessarily and be the loudest person in the place, in the room, you can actually sit there and quietly take everything in and then pick your moment to choose when you're actually going to respond. But I don't think I was encouraged, and I know that other people of my age, my sort of peer group and the friends that I associated with the time, we were necessarily encouraged to have a voice. People like Jeffrey Smith and I think even David Attenborough made me realise, either directly or indirectly, that we're all individuals. We shouldn't be scared. If, we, if we, we've got a right to an opinion and to be able to sort of formulate and express ourselves. But I think equally, you've got to be able to accept that not everyone's going to agree with your opinion. It doesn't matter whether what you say is right or wrong. And I think you can learn from your mistakes when you're growing up by being able to express yourself. That leads us nicely into... Um... The conversation we had previously where you talked around encouraging your team, particularly women, to speak up and have a voice around the table, you know, treating people equally. Yeah, I've spent throughout the whole of my career and I just sort of I, I just sort of really sort of take the view that. If you're managing people and managing teams, and, and I say managing, I, I like say that, you know, working with or for sort of teams is that everyone's got a right to express themselves, like I was saying a couple of minutes ago. Mm. And at times in my career, I've sat and chaired meetings and, you know, being, if you like, the team leader, the, the, the manager, whatever job title you want to put on it, but often... Not so much nowadays, but there were times where the women in the team would be very reluctant to say anything. And it was almost like they were surprised when they were being encouraged to to talk and express their opinion. And, and, And I remember one time with one particular woman and she said to me afterwards, you're very different from everybody else. Why is it you're wanting to encourage me to give your my opinion and thoughts? And I said, well, it's obvious, isn't it? If we're if, if if there's a team of five of us, your thoughts are just as important 
and key to the success or failure of this team that I'm apparently managing and leading as anybody else's. What is the point of having team meetings if you're all going to sit there and not really say anything? You're there to contribute. It's really important that you, you're able to sort of freely express that and be able to sort of take it forward. And what I've always encouraged, nothing is considered daft or stupid or anything. However, if you like, nutty the idea, the, the concept, my attitude is there is always the seed there's always that germ of an idea that even if it's very off the wall, it might not be that you can take it forward immediately, but somewhere along the line, that can be turned and used. And, and, and as I say, that can be grown. So I also like to encourage teams that I'm, as I say, working with, working for, to actually sort of just talk and feel empowered. And I think, you know, I think it's a shame that you almost have to sort of talk about it and think, think it through. Both Sibel and I would really enjoy and love to do is to be able to bring on young women at the beginning of their careers like Sibeli's as part of an overall leadership team to get them more advanced up the ladder. Now, companies, consultancies like Earthworld can play their part. And I think if you're very keen on your corporate social responsibility, your environmental and the sustainability sort of credentials, which we should all be individually and as sort of, you know, companies and businesses, because in the corporate world, you know, I'm always reading about only sort of 5% of a particular industry has got women as directors are on the board as an individual probably can't do much to control that or influence it what I can do is really directly think well this is where Earthworld is as a consultancy at the moment and this is where Sibel and I would like to get it to and to be able to do that is to be able to quietly (laughs) lead the way on doing things that um, others should be doing but as I say What's really interesting is that listening to you today and last time was that you you almost have like this selfless servant leadership where it's all about everyone else and you're quietly shaking that passion, that, you know, that enthusiasm, bringing, you you have a big vision, you know, you are truly passionate about what you do and you're helping others to come with you. You're taking people on that journey. I'm wondering when you think about yourself as a quiet leader and with your experience what do you see that you do differently to others I'm not sure whether I do well I probably do do things different my whole sort of experience and you know since talking to you over the last few weeks Julia it's got me really sort of thinking and being sort of focused because at times I've not it just seems to be almost it comes naturally to me the fact that I'm a quiet leader. But I think one of the things that certainly I sort of look at and and, and do is I think there's the empathy side of things Mm -hmm. and the sort of, if you like, the humility. And when I say humble, I don't mean humble in any sort of negative way or inferior sort of way, but you don't need to stand on a platform and sort of shout above everybody else. And I think one of the things that I find as a quiet leader, and I genuinely mean this, 99% of the 
of all the times throughout 35 year career that I've had the pleasure I've had the pleasure of managing leading teams very very different teams of people and I think it's an honor and I think that's what marks me out now I, I, I would rather hope that other quiet leaders would say the same or similar things but from my own personal very personal point of view and I think if you've been given that opportunity I think you should use it very very wisely I, I think it's also an opportunity to look at when I was growing up and particularly throughout my teenage years I was very very shy I, I like knowing that through the way I if you like manage and lead individuals as well as teams collectively gives every individual and the team collectively that sense of empowerment I like to give people that sense of responsibility I also very much like to take people out of their comfort zones at times because I've spent quite a lot of my career with and particularly at the beginning of my career with people taking me out of my comfort zone I just want to enable people that maybe feel that they haven't got a voice to have a voice throughout the whole of my career from people, CEOs, if you like, when I was not a CEO, I was like a head of something or other, who have come to me and sort of said, why are you sort of bigging up the team and giving the credit to the team or certain individuals within the team? And my answer to that is sort of very simple and straightforward. They're the team. They deserve it. That particular individual or individuals or the team collectively, the success has come about because everybody has played their part. I don't need to sort of say it's all me and, you know, it's all about me and I because there's that saying, which I don't use hardly ever at all, but there's always that thing, isn't there? There's no I in team. and it, But in, in a way, it's true, you know, and I get my sense of satisfaction and sense of achievement knowing that the individuals and the team collectively have delivered success and together we've de delivered solutions often at times where you know the solution that we've had to deliver has been quite challenging and quite difficult mm. you know and, and all I can say Julia is I, I like praise like everybody else it's like it, it's great to be sort of told that you've done a great job um, and, 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 and so on but I don't really go looking for it. I don't really need need it. As I say, I, I'd much prefer to bask in the fact that the, the team and the individuals are there. They've done it. And I like to think also as a quiet leader, you've got members of the team at various stages in their career. And some are more probably sort of ambitious than others. But I've never understood that the idea that you shouldn't be growing and building your teams. And I think very good leaders, doesn't matter whether you're a quiet leader or, 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 or not, but really great leadership is that I want to be able to encourage people in my team to almost end up, well, not almost, to end up leaving the team, not because I don't want them there, but because of promotion. They've either got to go and, you know, get that promotion in another part of the organisation or even externally. And I've never understood the concept where you've got to keep all your various sort of members of the team pinned down and not let them go. The whole idea and concept of being a leader and a quiet leader, in my mind, is to actually encourage and be there as the, as the leader to build 
and enable the resources for these people to go up the career ladder and to then lead teams and organizations, however small or large, themselves. And, and to give them to give them the encouragement, I'm not even going to say the tools, but just to give them the encouragement to believe in themselves. I think my career would be very different today if it wasn't for these quiet leaders, if you like, one of whom was my first ever business partner, a guy called Patrick. And we set up a consultancy called Archmain back in 1993. And we got to know each other and ended up working together because he was one of the other board directors, trustees of Butterfly Conservation. I then became um, the, I think, the Butterfly Conservation's youngest um, board director trustee, certainly at the time. And it was a, I was on board for about two and a half years and it was a very steep learning curve. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And I remember going to my first trustee meeting and sitting next to Patrick and he took me under his wing and it was him that sort of encouraged me to set up a professional media office within Butterfly Conservation. Now, I've got no, I had no experience of communications, journalism, the media whatsoever, but he quietly encouraged me to, to, to do that. And um, in mid-1983, when um, I was working for another wildlife charity and being the last in, I was the first out when they hit a financial crisis, I think. And um, I remember phoning up Patrick that same night and saying, what am I going to do? You know, and he said, well, first of all, you're not going to panic. And um, second thing we're going to do and let me think about it. But I think we'll probably set up a company together. And that was the best decade management learning about leadership and how to conduct yourself that, you know, I could have had. And, and, th and this was yeah. a guy that I think very definitely practiced quiet leadership. And the one thing that I very quickly picked up on is that this was the type of person that could walk in the room, really say nothing or not very much at all, but there was an immediate presence and you knew that he was there. And I mean that in a very positive way. Patrick commanded a room and an audience, and he gave me one, the, the, the best advice, best advice that he, he gave me was certainly in a business situation, never lose your temper and never show that you're angry. Because the moment that you show that you're angry and that you've lost your temper and that you're raising your voice and you're going purple, and so on with rage, you've lost the respect and integrity of those people in that room at that time and, and probably for a long time thereafter. And he'd say to me, doesn't matter whether deep inside in the pit of your stomach, you're absolutely seething with anger, keep it contained and channel it into a positive energy and remain absolutely calm because that will stand you in good stead. And I know throughout the whole of my career, there have been times, and it takes a lot for me to rise to anger and so on, but there's been occasions where I really wanted to sort of thump my fist on the table, but I remember these wise words and channel it. And again, I can't speak for other quiet leaders, but I'd be really interested to learn throughout all of these podcasts that you're doing, Juliet, as to whether other quiet leaders would say similar things, because that really interests me. 
what made me smile throughout that you talked about humility and humble and empathy and you know the power of community having the right people around you um, and that you encourage and enable um, we touched briefly on success but I think in all of that where you talked about it's we rather than I you yourself and I know you'll say it in partnership with other people have delivered more than 9.5 million pounds worth of benefits to good causes and you know throughout your career you know that's what your passion is around giving back and supporting the environment and everything else around that so I think when people listening don't underestimate the power of a quiet leader who says that you know the work for the team and everyone's around them and yet hold on a minute we don't really talk about successes because when we put some figures on it and the value and what you you and your teams have delivered it's significant yeah I think in fairness and you're definitely not wrong Juliet and don't get me wrong and I know you know this and others that know me um, more than reasonably well know that sometimes I might almost be quite sort of if you like flippant and throw away and almost dismissive if you like of my success I'm not really I'm very pleased and proud in a positive way of my career and what I've done and there are a lot of key moments, a lot of successes, including the sort of financial, uh, the fundraising, income generation sort of successes. And particular, in particular, you know, the successes at the time, the credit that I really enjoy taking is the fact that at the time, to give you an example, with butterfly conservation in the mid 1990s, it was growing with the, the staff team, growing with the membership. But I remember, you know, two two key corporate sponsorships that I will always be really proud of is helping and and working, taking the lead on bringing in um, Land Rover um, for a three-year campaign and also ICI. And in particular, ICI came about because um, I decided to set up a corporate membership scheme for butterfly conservation because they didn't have one. And within its first year, it had attracted 100 corporate members. And I think we've got the scheme at £100 per organisation. So that was £10,000. And ICI got in touch. And it was at the time where uh, the Rio um, conference was still very fresh. I think the original Rio conference was in 1992 or 1993. And it was all about biodiversity and even today, it's still very much about biodiversity conservation. There's still a long way to go and, 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 you know, significant things that conservationists and naturalists and, you know, the world as a whole needs to do to save plants and animals, the, 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 the natural resources that keep humankind in existence. The environmental team at ICI got in touch and said, well, you know, we want to be more than just corporate members. So myself and a few others, the um, a guy called Martin Warren, who became CEO at Butterfly Conservation. And so we sort of did the negotiations with ICI. And it was all very positive, but it was like a year of really quite intense negotiations and they wanted to really dot the i's and cross the t's and make sure that they were getting if you like their their money's worth anyway we came up with um, a biodiversity partnership to um, 
conserve two highly endangered species of butterfly and so on. And at the same time, the government of the day, I think the Environment Secretary, John Gummer, if I remember rightly, was talking about the need for corporate champions and the fact that environmental wildlife charities, I think, should be working with the corporate sector and vice versa. And we had a three-year um, partnership. And at the time, for uh, the size of the charity Butterfly Conservation was at that time, delivering £180,000, I think it was, was no small sort of happening. And again, you know, it sounds as if I'm blowing my own trumpet. I'm really not. And I'm feeling slightly awkward sort of saying this. But I remember <laughs> one of the corporate managers at the RSPB saying, you know, congratulations. And I think we'd beaten them because I think they had their eye on ICI and others, but we got ICI and Butterfly Conservation sort of launched as the first sort of corporate champions, the first sort of corporate biodiversity partnership. And it was launched with a big conference that ICI sort of helped with. And again, I think Sir David Attenborough came along and launched, yeah, he did launch the conference again with the Environment Secretary and, and so on. And, and by this time, I was acting as a freelance consultant for butterfly conservation on the media and the fundraising and helping with the marketing side of things, working with all sorts of other people. And um, I remember the end of the three year sponsorship and, you know, we had a sort of parting meeting with ICI. And I remember the environmental, I think he was the environmental communications manager, but he was, he, he, and he was certainly, you know, one of the key sort of people at ICI. We had this meeting and he said that if it wasn't, you know, for Gary's input, he and his colleagues from ICI were really sort of congratulating me. And I was feeling really uncomfortable at the time, but also sort of quietly very sort of pleased and proud because he said that I'd basically turned that £180,000 sponsorship into being, they evaluated it at being least, at worth at least six to eight times the PR value to them, let alone butterfly conservation. And um, they said, we would like to gift a further 20,000 pounds to butterfly conservation, but it's for you to choose what, where it goes, what project it goes on. That's the success that I'm really keen and pleased of because by being, if you like, a quiet leader, it brought all sorts of additional benefits. And, and, and I like the fact that I've got this quiet inner strength where I could seemingly at the moment <laughs> and throughout the whole of my career seem to be able to deliver funds where it almost seems impossible to be able to deliver the income that smaller organisations need and there is that. Thank you Gary it's a brilliant story and definitely bask in your successes. Was one quick tip you have for people who think they are quieter than others that want to find their voice and their way in their career? I think the best advice I can give is believe in yourself and have that quiet confidence. I don't mean arrogance, far from it, but really believe in yourself because there are early on in my career, there were times where I thought I didn't believe in myself, but then others did. And that brought me back to the fact that, yes, you know, I did have that confidence and I should believe in myself but also have that strength of character to believe in your convictions use your career and, and working for organizations to find your voice and, and 
the other piece of advice that I give that we haven't really touched on, I would encourage people to also do a lot of listening. Listening is so important as a quiet leader, you know, and I was once, I can't remember who told me this, but I know I've mentioned it to you before, um, is, you know, someone said to me once, you've got two ears and one mouth. So by the very fact that you've got two ears and one mouth, you should listen for twice as long as you talk. Great tips, Barry. Really enjoyed that <laughs> conversation today. Thank you so much for sharing all your worldly wisdom. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I love to talk and work with people and businesses who want to achieve more. I challenge their thoughts to create possibility. Anyone can be part of the conversation. Leave me a message, ask a question and connect with me.